What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 What's stopping? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to hear your answer to that question. If you'd like to give it to us, we would love to hear from you. Give us a phone call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. This is our program that's kind of geared towards our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, but um, anybody who may be in dialogue with a non-Catholic would be welcome to call, or if you just have a question in general about the Catholic faith that maybe you can't explain very well or don't understand as a non-Catholic, pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, the truth is the truth, even where you are. You can get a hold of us at one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is ctc at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price Charles Beery spinning the dials producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every day, Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, I'm great. How about you? <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm doing good. Um, you know, I, I just, as I was kind of going through the rundown there, it occurred to me that, you know, imagine if in the mid-1980s, you know, when we didn't have an internet yet, if someone had told you, David Anders, Catholic saver, uh, <laughs> Calvinist, that one day you will be using technology that can reach the entire world in the ether to convert people to Catholicism, you would have thought they had lost their minds. I would have been certain that they had lost their minds. <laughs> right, exactly. And I also would have thought, look, I have... What is more likely, the creation of the Internet or you trying to uh, nurture Catholics? Well, it, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that I had absolutely no interest in the Catholic faith. It's that given who I was in the mid-'80s, the Catholic faith would have had no interest in me. <laughs> <laughs> Got an email here from uh, John, and um, it's got some some references to ancient popes and uh, and some other things, and I have not read this yet, so bear with me as I take my first pass at this. John says, Dr. Anders, if Mary was already believed to have been immaculately conceived, why can I find popes that taught that she wasn't? Here are just three examples. Eve was produced without sin, but she brought forth sin. Mary was produced in sin, but she brought forth without sin. And that's from Innocent III. Um, John XXII said she, the virgin, passed first from a state of original sin, second 
from a state of childhood to maternal honor, and third, from misery to glory. Sure, I can speak to that. So it's not only popes, uh, it's doctors of the church as well. So St. Thomas Aquinas uh, famously did not believe in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and, and he, he, what he denied was not the dogma as it would eventually be defined, right? But, but he, he, he was aware of the idea, and he, he wasn't comfortable with it. And uh, in the late Middle Ages, it was a disputed doctrine, and uh, there were Franciscan theologians that were particularly keen on it. Uh, Blessed John Dun Scotus, in particular, is known as the great apologist for the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, but it didn't have a universal uh, acclaim. And, and so the Church's position on dogma is not that the, the specific formulation that is eventually rendered in the dogmatic formula, that that is the explicit belief of every Christian throughout history. We, we don't make that claim. Any more than you could say, say, you know, the bishops of the uh, second century affirmed the Nicene definition of the Trinity. Well, they didn't. They didn't have the Nicene definition of the Trinity. And, and there was widespread dispute about the exact nature of the relationship of Christ to the Father and Jesus's divinity and this kind of thing. So there were disputed questions. Um, that's why they had the Council of Nicaea. They had the Council so they could clarify these issues in dispute, formulate the dogma that would become the, the Catholic profession of faith on this issue. What the Church teaches is that the, the, the fundamental realities themselves that are later rendered formulaically are of apostolic provenance, that they come to us through the deposit of faith given by Christ and the apostles, uh, but that subsequent reflection upon that positive faith can uh, be subject to further clarification and definition, and particularly as controversy ensues. So we're not threatened by the fact that there is some theological controversy in antiquity. That's why we have a magisterium. It's why we have councils. It's why we have popes, so that when the time arises to make a formal declaration, we have a, we have a system for doing that, to resolve theological controversy. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Hi, Dr. Andrews, writes Anna. Thanks for all your great work. I just started OCIA, and listening to your program has been so helpful in my discernment process. I'm still a little confused by papal infallibility and exactly where it applies. Could you please explain whether it applies to the dubia referred to in the news stories a couple of days ago, or is that sort of thing outside of papal infallibility? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So papal infallibility applies when uh, the magisterium, either the pope or, uh, or the bishops in council with the pope, um, uh, define something as having been given to us from divine revelation and <coughs> mandatory for all Christians to believe at all times. Um, so let me see, I'm trying to find the formula from... And, they, and when those sorts of things happen, which are rarely, they pretty much just say... I now am speaking uh, infallibly uh, yes, from the in chair fact, of I'm Peter. To, while we're talking, <laughs> I'm trying to pull up the... Um, uh, the the phraseology that's given in the uh, the dogma of the assumption. I've, I've got the encyclical in front of me. I just can't find the paragraph on the fly. But it's you know I I define, teach, and and determine. I mean it's, it's language to that effect that this is the Catholic dogma that has been given by divine revelation. That's a pretty narrow description about what counts as actual infallible dogma. I have to come back to this after the break. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-EWTN. You know, we've got gift-giving occasions that I hate to tell you, but they're right around the corner. And we've got a great opportunity for you to take care of your loved ones, and you can nourish their faith at the same time. Check out the great items we have at EWTN's religious catalog. Mother Angelica thought it was very important that we be able to nurture our faith uh, through the great books and and, uh, catechetical resources that are available there. And she thought it was really important that we surround ourselves with holy reminders of uh, who we are within the body of Christ. And you can find a lot of that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just log on to EWTNRC.com. what were we talking about? We're talking about definitions of papal infallibility. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I found the quote I was looking for. So uh, Pius IX in Ennephopolis Deus, when he defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, puts it this way. We declare, pronounce, and define. Declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds the Blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance for conception by singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Christ was preserved free from all stain and original sin is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. So there's the two things in there that are really critical. One is that the Pope's signaling by his language, yo, fellas, I'm getting ready to define something. We declare, pronounce, and define. The other is the, the claim that the thing being defined is a doctrine revealed by God. And so there, there are other kinds of papal statements where the Pope will teach something definitively but without teaching that the question under consideration was explicitly revealed by God. So it might be something that's entailed by divine revelation, uh, but not explicitly stated in the deposit of faith. And that uh, requires the ascent of faith, but it can, uh, but, it, but, but it, it doesn't have the same standing that when you say God revealed this does, all right? And so, in other words, the, the number of circumstances under which papal infallibility as such really comes into play are fairly narrow. Now, outside of that, the Pope still has his, his ordinary magisterium. He still has teaching authority in the Church, and it's different from that of all the other bishops. He's not just one bishop among others when he's not infallible. And to put it in layman's turn, terms, you know, the Pope speaks for the Catholic Church. And so even if he's not acting infallibly, he... He, he has the final word on a topic, and so if he says this is the Catholic position on this issue, even if it's not a dogma, uh, it would be inappropriate for someone to just say, well, I just dispense with what the Pope is saying because he's not infallible. Um, you know, it, it, particularly that's true, obviously, on issues of policy, but even on issues of doctrine, um, he, he sets the tone, as it were, for the Catholic approach to this question. Now, your specific question was, the, did the Pope's responses to the recent dubia questions submitted to the Holy See, uh, were those infallible pronouncements? No, they're not infallible pronouncements, um, but they're authoritative pronouncements. And so the faithful are obligated to render what's called a religious submission of mind and will, not the ascent of faith, but the religious submission of mind and will to the Pope's ordinary magisterium. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Kathy in upstate New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kathy, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Um, the question I have is something I heard at a prayer meeting about three weeks ago. 
and it didn't ring true to me, but I wanted to be sure. What the woman said was, if the Pope teaches heresy, heresy, he is no longer the Pope. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, thanks. So this is actually a disputed question among theologians as to whether the Pope can, in fact, teach heresy. And it's a, it, this is a hypothetical one. Um, Cardinal Bellarmine is someone who, who wrote and speculated on this question. Um, and uh, I will tell you this. I will tell you that if, if you have a friend who, in whose private judgment, declares that the Pope teaches heresy— when all of the Catholic bishops of the world, or like 99.9% of them, don't agree with that judgment, um, your friend doesn't have the standing to make that kind of declaration, right? So this is, the, the determination of heresy is not something that's left to the private conscience and the private judgment of the individual, and that, that's why Christ gave us the Church. So um, there, are, there have been instances in history when popes, in a non-infallible way, have taught erroneous doctrine. And I think probably the most clear-cut case would be John XXII, who was a late mid-14th century uh, pope, who, who held personally a doctrine regarding the vision of God by the blessed after death, that denied that the blessed dead are admitted immediately to the beatific vision. He, he held something like the doctrine of soul sleep, and, uh, and because the doctrine hadn't been defined at that time, but it was widely held by most theologians to be in error. And he was pretty hard-nosed about it. He made life kind of difficult for people who wanted to hold the traditional doctrine. And uh, he was a uh, uh, number of Paris, uh, Paris Parisian theologians, and that was the premier school of theology of the day, as well as other members of the Episcopacy, who said, uh, Pope, you know, you're really out to lunch on this one. And he did actually come back and change his mind before he died, and he never defined his erroneous opinion. And that that... That kind of teaching is consistent with the Church's teaching and understanding of papal infallibility. Uh, there have been other cases. Honorius, Pope Honorius, um, uh, was at least ambiguous on the monothelite heresy. Uh, if, he, if, he didn't, if he wasn't a monothelite personally, he, he really passed up some opportunities to, to condemn monothelitism. There have been other cases in history where popes have been a bit sketchy on questions of doctrine. Um, but again... The, the determination of this question really isn't left to private persons. So, um, you know, I, 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 we are not going to throw around accusations of papal heresy. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Have you ever seen the Puget Sound? I have not. Neither have I. I hear it's spectacular. We're going to head to Seattle, Washington next. Nancy is watching us on YouTube today. Nancy, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Oh, hi, Jack and Dr. Anders. Well, um, yes, the sound is really something, and the bluest guys really are in Seattle. <laughs> well, there you <laughs> go. If, um, if only anyway. you saw them more often, right? Uh, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's right. That's the, that's the key. Um, well, I just wanted to ask Dr. Anders, uh, being that tomorrow is the feast day of St. Faustina, and of course her Jesus I Trust in You um, beautiful painting is in all the churches, and we love that and everything. And I just, um, I, I just had a question about, you know, devotion and um, to, to this particular saint, because the diary is, is so profoundly intimate and um, engaging. Uh, that um, is, and so intimate. I don't think I've ever read anything that's quite uh, as profound as that. And anyway, I'll just get right to the point. Basically, I just wanted to hear what Dr. Andrews says about the 
about anything he'd like to share about that. About the Divine Mercy and uh, Sister and Saint Faustina. So obviously, uh, uh, Faustina is a very popular saint. Devotion to her and to the Divine Mercy image and the Divine Mercy devotions is extremely popular in some quarters of the church. And uh, of course, it was extremely popular with Pope John Paul II, and we, he actually instituted a, a liturgical feast to the Divine Mercy, in which the image is venerated and devotions are encouraged. And so the Catholic response is, this is something that the Pope likes, it's something that the Church encourages, and it's available to all the faithful. Um, you know, as with any private revelation or any devotion, I also always think it's important to emphasize that uh, that that's optional for Catholics, and you're not you're not obligated as a Catholic to practice any particular devotion, uh, or to believe any particular private claim to private revelation. Something so the fact that something is approved or even encouraged uh, in that domain doesn't make it mandatory. And of course, it's it's this is a devotion that's widely restricted to the uh, to the Latin Church, so it's not part of the tradition of the Eastern uh, uh, devotions. Um, but um, you know, but if it's if you have it in your parish and it's important to you personally, then I would encourage you to to get involved and to <clears throat> and to practice that devotion. But with you know, without without uh, without acting like if your neighbor doesn't do it, they're a bad person. God bless you, Nancy. Thanks so much for the call. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Next up is Nick in Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Nick, you're on with Doctor Anders. Hey, uh, Dr. Andrews, Mr. Williams. Uh, I had two questions regarding confession that I wanted to run by you. Uh, first one being, uh, for one, I'm getting married tomorrow, and I wanted to um, be sure that I had a valid confession. Uh, the priest that I spoke to did not use the uh, ordinary formula of absolution. He said something to the fact of, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, I absolve you from your sins, you know, in place of, you know, God the Father of mercy through the death and resurrection, etc., so uh, I was curious if you uh, what you'd have to say about that one. And uh, the second question was in regard to uh, something you mentioned on an episode, I think a month ago, uh, saying that penance has to be listed in order for it to be valid, and that uh, penance is tied specifically to the priest's uh, jurisdiction. And I wanted to hear some clarification, because I, I talked to a one priest who seem to have a little bit of a differing opinion, but maybe uh, maybe it's just because you didn't elaborate, uh, or I didn't understand it the way you phrased it. Okay, yeah, sure, thanks. So, so uh, you have to use the valid uh, canonical formula to absolve the penitent. Now, um, you know, a priest could leave out you're supposed to, you know, God, the Father of mercies, who sent the Holy Spirit from among us for the forgiveness. There are parts of that that are not essential for the absolution, but he has to say, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if they uh, if they start winging it at that point, then it's an invalid absolution. In the same way, you, you can't wing the uh, the institution narrative in, in the consecration of the Eucharist. You have to use the formula that's given, the proper form given to us by the Church. Um, I don't know why priests play fast and loose sometimes with this, and they should say the whole thing, right? I mean, they, they can't do better than the Church. The formula given to us by the Church is quite beautiful and edifying, and why they would want to play fast and loose, I don't know. Now, it can happen. You go to confession, and the priest mumbles the formula of absolution. I mean, I've had that more times than I can count. Uh, and they will sometimes they'll start in on the absolution while you're still making your act of contrition because they got a big line they're trying to move through, and you may only hear, like, the, the last word, you know, you might only hear, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, I don't know if I got absolved or not. I know of one case, actually, 
um, happened here at EWTN. Valid confession, valid, valid absolution. But the penitent didn't hear the absolution. And it was the last penitent in line before the priest had to leave the confessional and, um, and go say Mass for the, for the network. So this penitent is in the confessional, doesn't hear the words of absolution, just thinks the priest has gotten up and walked out the door. And uh, doesn't know why why this individual was left here, you know, unabsolved. So remained in the confessional throughout the entire mass. Priest comes back in the confessional. Penitent's still there going, well, I was waiting for you to absolve me. And he's like, well, I already absolved you. I absolved you 30 minutes ago. But this person just didn't hear it, you know. So that can happen, too. Occasionally, you'll get priests that come from a different rite, uh, and uh, and are on loan to a Latin Rite diocese, and they may not have been formed in the canonical formula in use in the Latin Church, and so you'll sometimes have some ambiguities there. Um, but uh, but yeah, you do need to have the valid formula. Then your other question was about the validity of confession. Um, yeah, validity of confession does in fact depend upon the proper jurisdiction of the priest. So there are situations where the priest is automatically granted faculties. Even a laicized priest is automatically granted faculties to validly and licitly hear confession, and that would be in cases of danger of death. So you have some priest that's been laicized. He no longer has faculties to operate as a priest, uh, but he's walking down the road, and he sees somebody get hit by a car. They're about to expire. Um, the priest is automatically granted faculties in that instance to go over and hear that confession and, and to grant absolution. But, but without faculties, a priest cannot validly, cannot licitly, and therefore cannot validly absolve. And the reason that the sacrament of confession is different here than, say, from baptism, is because confession is is not only reconciliation with God; it's a juridical act whereby the penitent is also reconciled to the church and to the and to the community of the faithful. And so someone who is going to readmit you to the community of the faithful and to communion uh, needs to have jurisdiction to do that, right? Um, it's like, you know, if, uh, if, you're, if you work in the customs office and, and, uh, or the, uh, yeah, at the airport and you, your job is to stamp the passports and let somebody in, like, y- you have to have authorization to let somebody in the country, right? Uh, same thing with the confessional. You have to be authorized to let somebody into the communion of the church. And um, this is why when um, Pope Francis, in a tremendous act of, of, um, of beneficence, granted faculties to priests of the Society of St. Of, uh, of, uh, Pius X to validly hear confessions, because he recognized that there were lots of people who had grown up in that communion um, who, through no fault of their own, did not have access to valid sacraments because their bishops had no jurisdiction, their priests had no jurisdiction. And the Pope, wanting to be generous to them, just said, okay, I, even though you guys aren't fully in obedience, I just unilaterally grant you faculties uh, to, um, uh, to, uh, to hear confessions validly, and, uh, and in some instances to, um, to oversee marriages, which also require jurisdiction for valid canonical form. Thanks, Nick. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
You know, David, I know you're aware, I don't know how many people are aware, that EWTN not only has 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week radio programming in English, but also in Spanish. And we've got congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. Radio Santissimo Sacramento in Northern California is celebrating their 12th year with EWTN. Congratulations to Lorena Alberon and her whole team at Radio Santissimo Sacramento. Sacramento, Sacramento, um, from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN's our toll-free number. We still have a couple of open lines and time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Coleman is up next. He's a first-time caller in Columbia, South Carolina, listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Coleman, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, good afternoon, Doctor. How you doing today? I'm all right, thanks. How about you? Amen, amen. I was reading in the catechisms, I think it's 552, 53. Um, it was stating that the church, our faith, was built upon Peter. But when you read in the, the Bible, the, the Bible says that our church was built upon Christ. Is that's not is. I guess I don't know how to handle that information. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks. You know? I really appreciate the question. So here's how you handle it. Um, obviously, uh, Christ is the foundation of the Church, and to be a Christian is to be united to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, to rise again with Christ, and to be conformed to Christ's likeness and image. It's to be saved by the atoning work of Christ. It's to be taught by the teaching of Christ. It's to imitate the example of Christ. So Christ is central to the Church beginning and end, to, to its structure, to its constitution, to the means of grace and salvation, and to our own personal spirituality. Uh, but Christ extends his presence in the world through the ministration of the Church. So people in the Church are like, uh, St. Paul says, that uh, we are Christ's co-laborers. He's speaking of the apostles in 2 Corinthians 5. He says we're Christ's co-laborers as if, as, as if God were making his appeal through us. And he can write in Colossians chapter 1 about himself. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. And, uh, and so the idea is Christ uses human instruments to extend the scope of his ministry. And we become participants uh, in, that, uh, uh, in that intercessory and mediating work. And among the instruments that Christ uses, he appointed one in particular to be the head of the College of the Apostles, and that was St. Peter. And he said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, Peter, the word Peter means rock. He changed his name from Simon to Peter and says, you are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, it doesn't mean that we're saved by Peter or that Peter died for our sins or that the teaching and example of Peter or what we should imitate uh, but Peter is the vice-regent, if you will. He is the representative that Christ sent to be the head of the church. And, and likewise, he gave us bishops and priests. And, um, and in many ways, I mean, we are, we are uh, like little Christs to one another. We're to, we're to manifest the presence of Christ to the world uh, by our actions, by our love, by our charity. And so every, every baptized person is, in a sense, a priest in the Catholic Church, offering the sacrifice of our body and our life out of love for God and neighbor, and that way we manifest Christ's presence in the world. That doesn't, the fact that I might come to know the mediation of Jesus, say through the charity that Jack shows me, doesn't make Jack God, and it doesn't make Jack Jesus. It means it's Christ living in him, hopefully, uh, that can become, for me, a source of inspiration and the hope of glory. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. D is a first-time caller in Billings, Montana. Listening on Billings Catholic Radio, D, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Um, it's great to speak with you. Actually, an honor. Um, quickly getting to my question. So my boyfriend and I have been talking about marriage, um, and he was raised, his mom was an elder in Willow Creek outside of Chicago. He was raised in that church, married in that church. So my question is twofold. Um, his baptism, teenager at a summer camp by a youth minister, and he doesn't remember exactly the words, but in his heart, he considers himself baptized. So I'm just wondering if that weighs into his annulment process, and then also um, if you have a good book for non-Catholics regarding the scriptural and why Catholics believe in annulments, because I tried to explain it to him, but I need help. Yeah, sure, thank you. So, so when it comes to the question of the validity of his baptism, uh, if this individual wanted to become Catholic, what I would advise him to do is to let the Church know that there is a doubt about the validity of his baptism, and he should be conditionally baptized in the Catholic faith. Now, the Catholic Church never rebaptizes anybody, but sometimes someone will present themselves, and you don't know if they were baptized or not. So, lest we accidentally attempt to baptize twice, which we never do, there's a formula for conditional baptism, which is basically, if this person is not baptized, then I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are, there are sacraments also that can be performed uh, conditionally. Ordination can be performed conditionally as well. Um, and so that, you know, that, that's the proper way to go forward. As to whether or not it will help his annulment case would depend on the grounds that he was alleging for annulment. It would depend on the impediment that was being claimed, and I don't know enough about the, the particulars of the case, but I definitely would want to let the tribunal know, uh, those that are investigating, that there could be a question as to the validity of his baptism, and it won't necessarily help you, right? So it's also possible it could hurt you, right? I, I mean, but you need to let them know. The, question, the baptism question may come into it. I don't know enough about the case to know how, but you should absolutely the sacramental status should uh, should be raised. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Um, Ted writes in, uh, dear Doctor Anders, not to be argumentative, but on solid Catholic teaching, I have to disagree with Doctor Anders, continually stating that the Eucharistic miracles, quote, cease to be the Eucharist after scientific evidence shows it to be a muscle of the heart. Uh, and since it doesn't fit the criteria of the definition of the Eucharist as so stated in the authority of the Church. One consecration of the host takes place by a properly once consecration of the host takes place by a validly ordained priest. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, and regardless of what scientific evidence might state that it is muscle of the heart, it still fits the criteria or definition of the Eucharist as defined by the Church. Once consecrated, no matter what science determines, it remains the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Nothing, even science, cannot change what a consecrated host is transubstantially. What say you? Yeah, thank you. So, first of all, I, you know, when I made that claim, and I'll make it again, right, <laughs> I, I, am, I am offering a, a, a reflection 
And I'm definitely not making a dogmatic declaration. All right, that's up to the Holy Church to do. The definition of the Eucharist and the definition of the real presence is that the real presence of Christ remains as long as the accidents of bread and wine remain. All right? And the interesting thing about alleged Eucharistic miracles is that the accidents of bread and wine don't remain. Like, if it no longer looks like bread, the definition of the Eucharist is that it has to look like bread. If it doesn't look like bread, it's not actually the Eucharist. Now, uh, it, it may very well be heart tissue from Christ. But what's contained in the Eucharist isn't just his heart tissue, but the whole Jesus. The whole Jesus is in there. I mean, all the whole substance of Christ's body and blood is in the Eucharist, the consecrated host. If I have a fragment of heart tissue, that, that's, that doesn't equal the definition of the Eucharist. I'm not saying that a miracle didn't occur. Maybe a miracle did occur. The only reason I make the point is that I have been asked before, why don't I advance Eucharistic miracles as evidence for the truth of transubstantiation? And I don't usually. When people say, why do you believe that the Eucharist is the body of Christ? I give the answer that St. Thomas Aquinas gave, which is, I would never know this but for the authority of Christ who taught it. What says trusty hearing, right? That's from that famous Eucharistic hymn of St. Thomas. That's the only way I know. I don't know the doctrine of transubstantiation from any kind of scientific analysis. I don't know because I've placed a host under a microscope and I've discerned some quality that indicates the presence of Christ. I only know because of the authority of teaching. Christ's teaching, Christ's word, is the only way I know this mystery. And, uh, and so if you advance some other criteria for knowing, in my way of viewing, and this is just my personal opinion, I don't think that strengthens the, the faithful's understanding of the doctrine of the Eucharist. If I keep looking for some evidence apart from the word of Christ, then I, I think I actually weaken the basis for belief, which is trust in Christ's word. Now, that, that doesn't mean that there aren't Eucharistic miracles and that they can't strengthen the faith of those who already believe. But if you don't believe, I think you start with the authority of Jesus, not with, uh, with empirical investigation of the nature of the host. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 833-288-EWTN. It's a toll-free phone call, 833-288-3986. We'd love to hear from you. We have an anonymous email. It says, Some Calvinists say, when teaching total depravity and election that we have free, that we have free will, but our will is evil and broken, so we always choose sin— and in heaven, our free will is perfected, so we always choose right. Does this line up with the Catholic Church's understanding of free will and election? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, um, St. Augustine of Hippo uh, was famous for the, the distinction between, uh, he might use a Latin phrase here, um, non posse non peccare, not possible not to sin, posse non peccare, possible to not sin, and non posse peccare, not possible to sin. And he said these are the three conditions of the human soul. And before grace, it's not, he would say, it's not possible not to sin. Uh, with grace, it is possible to not sin. And in glory, it is not possible to sin. And again, in Augustine's formulation, particularly in his book on the freedom of the will, uh, he understood the more grace you have and the more you are confirmed in grace, the more freedom you have. The inability to refrain from sin is not freedom but slavery, slavery to sin. The inability to sin means that you are totally freed up 
to be liberated from your passions to make the most uh, effective use of your rationality to choose only the good. And, and there's really no other option in there, okay? Now, the, the way the church has developed its understanding of the freedom of the will, in particular, I mean, there's, there's, there are different theologians who give a different account for it. Church teaches that humans have free will. What does that mean? Well, Catholic philosophers go to work, try to unpack what that has to entail, and different Catholic philosophers have given different accounts. St. Thomas Aquinas, who's definitely a very authoritative voice, he's not the only one, maintained that the nature of human freedom is the nature that enables us to rationally deliberate between goods, that I can rationally discern something as a good and then deliberate between various goods. And so, you know, for example, I've used this on the air before. Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm walking down the boardwalk and I smell the, the smell of fresh pizza coming from a pizza stand. Well, pizza is a good. It definitely is a good. Um, and uh, I've got a member of my family who thinks pizza is the greatest thing since sliced bread is all she wants to eat, right? It's a good. Uh, but I also hear someone who's fallen off the boardwalk and they're drowning in the water and they're crying out for help. Well, saving a human life is also a great good. All right. Now, you know, if I can deliberate, should I save the person or eat the pizza? Then St. Thomas would say, you're free. But if I'm so depraved that I choose the pizza over the person, my priorities are really out of order and my passions are really out of order. And, uh, and that's, you know, that, that's not real freedom. But if I can say, hey, you know, the human is a greater value than the pizza. I'm going to say no to my hungry stomach and I'm going to go save this individual. Um, then, uh, then I really am freer than the person who is just compelled to follow their passions. But it's by ability to rationally deliberate that makes the difference. Now, some Reformed theologians, not all, will, will maintain that humans have freedom, uh, but they'll say that, that freedom is, uh, that the, the, the power of the will is compelled to follow its greatest impulse. This is the way that Jonathan Edwards conceived of it in his treatise on the freedom of the will, that, that uh, you know, I really do have a will, I really do choose, but what I choose is what my disposition, you know, character, habit, and passion is inclined to choose. And so there's a, there's a determinacy about Edwards' understanding of the freedom of the will where, where he, can, he can align that with sort of perfect predestination and, and God's providence in, in control of everything, um, and yet he can still ascribe a kind of freedom because it's I who am doing the willing. Whether or not that's compatible with a Catholic account of freedom may be, may be questionable. Um, what alerts you to a new program we've got on the weekends, The Spirit World. It's on Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The Spirit World offers a, com a Catholic perspective on issues related to angels, demons, and how the spiritual and physical worlds interact. It's hosted by our own Debbie Giorgiani and Adam Bly. As we honor the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary under the title Our Lady of Victory, uh, they, will look, they will dive deeply into the Most Holy Rosary as a powerful prayer against heresies and paganism. That's on the Spirit World, Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is John in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. John, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Good afternoon. Hey. The reason I'm calling, I have a son that was a devout Catholic, and I went to church with him. He went from the Novus Ordo Mass to the Latin Mass. Then he didn't like what he was hearing there. Then he went to an independent church where the the priest doesn't think we have a pope, that he's the, 
that we don't have, that the office is empty. And he since then went to the Eastern Orthodox Church. You know, he doesn't like, he's a conservative, and he doesn't like some of the things that are coming out of the Vatican. Some of the cardinals that the Pope surrounds himself with, uh, guys like James Martin, who said maybe the Bible is wrong. Yeah, I know the drill. I know the drill. I've, I know this type. I've seen it many times. So how can I help you? I, I'm at a loss as to what to do. I'm thinking about leaving the Catholic Church, going to the Eastern Orthodox Church, where some of these things don't even become an issue. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I will tell you this. And I, you know, I had a, a Presbyterian guy that wrote me the other day, and he was real upset about the status of his Presbyterian church, wanted to know if he should become Catholic. And I said, well, here's what I can guarantee you. If you leave the Presbyterian church, you will leave behind the kind of problems that Presbyterians have, and you will assume the kind of problems that Catholics have. And I can tell you, if you leave the Catholic church, you will leave behind some of the problems that Catholics have, and you will take on some of the problems that Eastern Orthodox have, because there's no ecclesial communion of any kind it doesn't have its own internal tensions and, and, and difficulties. And I, there, there is a highly idealistic and polemical presentation of Eastern Orthodox that is meant to appeal to exactly the kind of person that your son is uh, that will present it in a romantic way without problems. And you ne- you're never going to be in a religious community without problems. You might have a honeymoon period of several years before you really kind of understand what the problems are, but you're not going to escape problems. Now, when it comes to the specific issues that you raise within the Catholic Church, um, I think you you know you mentioned the, the sort of the status of uh, homosexual unions and things things of that sort um, coming out of um, well alleged to come out of the Vatican. And I would encourage you to take a look at the Pope's very recent response to five questions that were put to him by cardinals um, on these very issues. And I'm just going to quote the Pope's words. He says the Church has a very clear conception of marriage. This is Pope Francis, and this was like two days ago. Uh, an exclusive, stable, indissoluble union between a man and a woman naturally open to the begetting of children, and only this union is called marriage. All right, so the Church has not changed its teaching at all. There are reactionaries who I think are very interested in, 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 in alienating the faithful from the Holy Father and in trying to turn everything into a political question and, uh, and really exacerbating ideological division within the Church. Um, and... Um, and I, I mean, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's helpful at all. You know, no, um, popes are human beings. Um, they have personal opinions. They have opinions about policy, about pastoral procedure, about, you know, prudential judgments. Uh, but when it comes to teaching the doctrine of the faith, I mean, they're guaranteed by the Holy Spirit to teach the faith infallibly. And Christ promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and the gates of hell have not prevailed. Uh, but you've never had a period in history where there haven't been controversies and problems and ideological divisions. And in my judgment, it's not helpful uh, to exacerbate those and to be reactionary and to, you know, make it impossible for people to hear valid things that the Pope and the bishops have to say. Uh, Julie in Colorado called, and she couldn't hold on, but she wants to know if you could recommend a book on annulments, especially explaining what they are and why we do them. She has a friend whose boyfriend has a lot of questions. Yeah, so this is—I'm going to recommend a book. It is not the best book out there. It is, however, the only one that I can think of at the present. Um, and it seems a bit self-serving to recommend because I wrote it, right? And I want to qualify that I don't—I'm not a canon lawyer, and it's not written from a canon lawyer's point of view, but I wrote a book called The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. My own marriage, I didn't have an annulment, but I did have a convalidation. And so sort of working through the legal regime of thinking about questions of validity became very important to me personally. 
and I, I did a lot of research on it, and I lived through it. All right, so part of that book covers exactly what you're talking about, the logic behind annulments, why they exist, uh, how they function, um, and then more important, the, the, the spiritual relevance to an individual's life, right? And I will say in my own case that uh, the process of investigating the question of validity, um, of, uh, of having the convalidation, the kind of soul searching that, that is required was ultimately very good uh, for my marriage. And um, and and I and it can has a it has the potential to be very healing, and uh, and positive thing because ultimately the church is interested in the question of truth, and uh, and we should always be interested in truth. Now, in terms of the biblical basis for this, I'm going to point out to you that, I mean, proto annulments are, are in Scripture. I mean, Saint Paul in First Corinthians deals with the question of invalid relationships, and he says under certain circumstances, look, these are the conditions under which you have to repudiate your spouse because you're not in a valid union. And there's a case in 1 Corinthians specifically of exactly that kind. Here, here's when you're bound. Here's where you can't get a divorce. Here's what you do if you do get a divorce and you can't remarry unless you reconcile to your spouse. And here's the kind of union that you have to repudiate because it's invalid. All that's biblical. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, had some, I had someone once in a similar conversation saying, you know, if only, if only we had a situation, if only we had a way to determine whether or not marriages were actually valid or whether they were. Oh, wait a minute. We do. We do. We do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, my experience before I became Catholic in the Protestant world was that I knew Protestants that were very, very big on the indissolubility of marriage. They said, you know, divorce is absolutely inadmissible. You can't get divorced. Terrible thing, divorce. Don't ever do it. Oh, you got divorced. Oh, okay. Well, try not to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but I think that one of the points that you made there that should not be lost is if this is entered into in the proper spirit, it can be so abundantly healing. And, oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's... it's. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. that's our Lord's intention in that's the right. whole process. That's right. You know? That's right. And, and, you know, the other point really here is people think that, that, you know, the Catholic Church is handing out annulments like candy, you know, which is, is not is certainly not true but when you look at the where we are at in our culture culturally both church and civilly in our culture um you know what minimum of eight years of preparation to become ordained a priest right yet for marriage couples to enter enter, yeah exactly that's right yeah Yeah, a weekend and and, the number of people who actually understand what the church means by marriage and all its ramifications commits to that and is psychologically capable of committing to that is not great. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Very quickly, um, Rich wants to know, if we must be purified before seeing God in the beatific vision, what is the difference between that face-to-face encounter and the way the disciples would have seen Jesus face-to-face? Okay, yeah. So the disciples who saw the face of Christ, like, say, at the Transfiguration, um, they were not themselves experiencing the beatific vision. And, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the vision of God that is the reward of the just. The vision that Paul said, eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. Uh, St. Paul said, and he had seen Christ. Right? He saw the risen Christ. Paul had visions of Christ. Paul even had the ascent to paradise in Second Corinthians 12 we read about. And yet he says, I see as through a glass darkly and not face to face. There is a vision of God, and vision is really an analogous word here. We're not talking about something seen with the eyes. We're talking about 
an intuitive experience of the essence of God, whereby God and his infinite majesty and knowledge, truth, goodness, and beauty becomes fully present to the soul in a way that is uh, overwhelming and permanently locks you in on the, the love and union with the good. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something that you can't fall away from, and it's, it's, uh, we don't have words to describe the glory. Do we think enough about heaven and hell? I don't know. How much do you think about heaven and hell in the Roman Empire? <laughs> I would say no. So, you know, uh, believe it or not, and I've said this on the air before, um, there was a book that helped me with conceptualizing heaven more than any other. It's a fiction book by C.S. Lewis, and it's called The Last Battle. And uh, it's a fictional, it's, sort of, it's a metaphor, it's a parable of, of, of death and the life thereafter. But the way Lewis describes, um, you know, sort of passing through layers of an onion to deeper, deeper levels of reality where things become more and more rich, more beautiful, more real, the deeper you go, uh, captured my imagination as a child and has, uh, has helped me enormously ever since to conceptualize heaven. So go read The Last Battle. There you go. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, we're once again asking that question, what is stopping you from becoming Catholic? I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. We will take another swing at that question with all of your phone calls, emails, and the like tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless.